Good morning, everyone. This is Annie Zhu, Vice President of Business Development at CapitalLink. Welcome to CapitalLink's webinar series. Today's webinar will feature Tecorium Trading LLC on grains in the portfolio and seasonal price patterns in corn. We're delighted to have with us our feature presenter from Tecorium, Sal Gilberti, President, CIO, and Co-Founder. This event is accessible through a live audio webcast and then as an audio archive through www.capitallinkwebinars.com. Please note the presentation slides are user control. To access this presentation, please look to the top right-hand corner and you will see the two buttons titled Previous Slide and Next Slide. There will be a Q&A session after the presentation. Webinar participants can submit questions through the special button on the event page titled Submit a Question or email them to questions at capitalinkwebinars.com. You can submit a question at any time during the event. The opinions expressed by the presenter is not intended as legal or investment advice or advice of any kind as a matter of fact and are provided for informational and educational purposes only. Capital Link bears no responsibility for them. Furthermore, the presentation may contain forward-looking statements concerning future events. Our next webinar will be on Wednesday, October 10th at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time featuring Tortoise Capital. For more information, please visit webinars.capitallink.com. And now I will turn the floor to Sal. Thank you, Annie. I very much appreciate everyone tuning into this webinar. It should last, uh, just, just for everyone's edification, about 30 minutes. Um, you see a 29-page uh, presentation that, you, that, again, is user-controlled, and I'll step through and, and try to say the page numbers as often as I can to keep us all in the same spot. About uh, 20 or 21 of these pages um, are their actual presentation. The rest is, is an appendix with some information in the back. So. Uh, with that, we'll, we'll begin. Um, the front page has our, we have four funds. They are corn, wheat, soybeans, and a sugar fund entitled Cane. They are all listed on the uh, New York Stock Exchange under the ARCA system. Highly liquid, uh, very transparent uh, fund molded in the ETF format, so we, we post our positions daily on our website. Everyone knows uh, what they're buying. They can see what positions are held. These are... Um, Static benchmarks, meaning if they're long-only funds, they are used for people who believe the price of these assets are going to either go up or down, and they can buy or sell the fund accordingly. And uh, again, for instance, using corn, if corn goes up, the price of corn in general goes up, the price of the ETF will go up. If the price of corn in general goes down, the price of the ETF will go down, allowing an investor exposure. Um, what we'll cover are some, some macro factors that hopefully are, are interesting and enlightening for people. Um, how they, how these factors affect grain demand and supply, which is quite interesting. Um, then we will get into very specifically um, how prices behave in general, how they have behaved in the past, where there may be some opportunity for investors, and in particular some very strong seasonal opportunities. Um, page two is, a, is our disclaimer. People, people can look at that as they wish. Very necessary and good things in there. Um, page three, the true start of, of this presentation. We're looking at why would investors want to include commodities in the portfolio. And again, this presentation, we will specifically be talking about grains, but it is worth a mention 
that commodities over time do uh, reduce overall portfolio volatility statistically. Um, and they really don't have a material effect on absolute returns. And what we mean by that in slide number four, there's a pie chart. Um, we update this study that was started by Morningstar. Um, we've updated the study every three years. We updated it in 2010, 2013, and 2016. Very simple. Take, the concept is one that takes a 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks and equities, 40% uh, bonds, fixed income securities. And you basically keep your fixed income portion, your riskless portion of your portfolio untouched. You, for whatever reason, uh, Morningstar chose the numbers. They didn't split it exactly in half. They kept 32% of the risk side of their portfolio in equities. They put 28% in a broad basket commodities index. And what happened in, this is a, again a, a long term, so it's a 20-year study. Again, we updated every three years. It's a complicated study to update. but. In this particular study, the time period ended in 2016, returns declined by about two-tenths of a percent, which is, is insignificant. But most significant is that your standard deviation, your, your risk of the portfolio, declined by uh, nearly 22%. It dropped, dropped very dramatically. And why does that happen? I think um, people understand when we say, here's what happens when you include something that's slightly more volatile in your portfolio. It replaced you replace stocks with commodities. Commodities are slightly more volatile in, in many studies. Um, why would that decrease the volatility in your portfolio? And I think a good example is if you're a good airline stock picker and you have a basket of airline stocks in your portfolio, over time those stocks will do well because you're a good stock picker. Um, in the quarter or where there's an oil shock and the price of oil skyrockets, that's the largest cost input for an airline. So that quarter, the... Uh, financial performance of the airline stock that you chose may uh, decline. You may take a hit in your portfolio briefly, but over time, because you're a good stock picker, those stocks will rebound. If that loss that you take in your airline stocks is offset with a gain because you had direct exposure to oil, the airline's uh, highest cost of, of, of uh, operation in your portfolio, those two gains, those two things offset, the loss and gain offset one another. And that's quite simply how it does it. You could say poultry producers um, and corn. You can pick any any two offsetting uh, cost factors and inputs and own that commodity directly along with the company that is most affected by those. And you have offsetting uh, performance. And that's why, uh, in a nutshell, performance evens out. Moving on to the next slide, this is a very interesting slide. You're, you're looking at a colored bar chart. Um, the bars are horizontal, not vertical. And these are how different commodities, and these happen to be all the commodities excluding gasoline that trade in the ETF format. So they're easily uh, available to investors. And how they correlate over very long periods of time, 20 years, to the S&P 500. Most people hold gold. Most people um, with whom we speak, they have a permanent gold allocation. Um, they believe it's a, it's a good portfolio diversifier, and, you know, that's fine. But what, what surprises them when they see this chart or other studies like it is that gold actually um, is pretty well correlated to the S&P 500, whereas, um, in this case, natural gas and then three of the four big grains, um, big food stuff, are the least correlated. And why is that? I think, I think a good way to look at that is the last thing anyone will do ever is allow themselves, their family, or their animal even to be cold or hungry. So just just think about it. No matter what the stock market is doing, no matter what the latest iPhone is, no matter 
who the president may be or what, what is happening anywhere around the world on a macroeconomic basis, people will still eat and they will still uh, eat, need to heat their home. And in, in America, natural gas is a landlocked market. And so that, that's a price that, that remains pretty resilient. We've got our own unique fundamentals there. But people are turning on the heat every winter regardless of anything else happening. At the same time, um, they are using these grains regardless of anything else happening. Normally, uh, when we redo the study, and we redo it once a year, um, the grains are the four bottom items, corn, sugar, wheat, and soybeans. Soybeans uh, in this last year performed actually in 2016 almost exactly the same way as the S&P 500 did. The reason for that is the massive Chinese demand for soybeans. They've been buying soybeans had a very strong year last year, and their correlation was almost perfect in that one year with the S&P 500, which bumped it up on the list. Um, now we'll get a bit to the meat of the presentation of, of the, the macro fundamentals of, of supply and demand for grain. Um, what drives the underlying demand for grains is quite simply population increase. Um, I believe we're approaching, it's either, if memory serves me correctly, the two or three year anniversary. It happened on, uh, uh, I remember, Halloween Day, the United Nations announced we had hit seven billion people uh, in, the, in the United States. And we're still growing. We grow at a rate in the world of about 75 to 78 million people a year are added to the global population. Now, that's two and a half people every second. We've got interesting statistics here. If you go to the next page, it kind of puts that in perspective. I don't really know what those, I can't picture those numbers. I personally have a, have a problem picturing that. What that is is the equivalent of, of two Californias. So the population of California times two is added to planet Earth every single year. That, that kind of puts it in perspective. So um, that's how many mouths are needed to feed. That's how many people, additional people, come into the world using commodities of all sorts. Um, next page, you see a picture of, uh, this is slide eight, a picture of um, corn bushes, bushels, and soybeans and wheat. And each person in the world, on average, consumes about five bushels of corn, two bushels of soybeans, and four bushels of wheat. The United States average is actually higher. We'll touch upon that later. Um, what does that mean? That means, uh, and move to the next slide, slide number nine, we need just to feed the additional 75 to 78 million people a year, just those people, just to plant the corn, soybeans, and wheat needed to feed just those people, a land area equivalent to one-eighth the size of California. Now, to put that in perspective, about a quarter of California's land use is for agricultural purposes. Agriculture is an extremely important supplier of, of crops um, for people to, to consume. Half of the land they use, for, for agriculture right now, the equivalent of half those acres needs to be added every single year just to supply the new people, the new 78 million people coming in. Um, that's, that's pretty amazing. And the next slide puts that into perspective. Um, this is the slide that shows the combined, and this is page 10, combined world consumption of corn, wheat, and soybeans. Now, you can see it's an upward slope. And the, the blue lines actually represent consumption here. And because of essentially population growth and other things we'll get to very shortly, usage of these grains increases almost every single year. It's a rarity when you have a, a uh, decline in usage. And the red line is, is production. And production, thank goodness, has kept pace 
due to a variety of things, mostly genetic engineering and new technology, farm, farm equipment technology, has kept pace with demand. But there are occasions, and if, if you just eyeball that in 2005, six, where you kind of, your production kind of dropped, you can see where production dropped every once in a while. In 09, 10, the crop year, it dropped. In 12, 13, it dropped. These have um, ever-increasing effects, increasingly dramatic effects on price, and we'll, we'll show some visuals of historical charts in a minute. But it's very important to understand that supply is, is more erratic than demand. Demand grows and is very steady. Supply tends to get interrupted. Um, why is demand so steady? Not just because of population. The next page, page 11, it looks like an atom with a, it's labeled corn. Um, we'll use corn as an example. If you, if you pull into your um, service station to fill your average American SUV up with gasoline, they will use almost a bushel of corn. That, that consumes almost a bushel of corn because of the ethanol content in the gasoline. Um, that's actually corn's number two use globally. Um, the number two use of corn is for fuel. The number one use is if you were to go inside or your kids were to go inside that service station and buy some beef jerky sticks or a chicken taco or whatever animal-based product there is that, that they want to eat when they're hungry. The number one use for corn is, is animal feed. Well, now if you grab something to drink and wash all that down, likely it's sweetened with corn syrup. That's corn's number three use. If you um, sign the credit card slip, to, and people still do that. They don't have iPhones. If they're signing that piece of paper or using paper in any way, there's corn's number four use. That's corn starch, hold paper together. Um, corn is in plastic. Corn is in, in uh, all kinds of materials that you don't expect. They, it's in thousands of items in the average grocery store. So people are using corn whether they know it or not. Most people, I think, have uh, gold in their portfolios, thinking back to our correlation chart. And most people, many people, have oil in their portfolios because they say, I drove to work today. I turned the heat on in my house today. I cooked something with my stove today. I used energy. I, I don't think people are quite aware of how much corn and grains that they use every single day. It is virtually impossible to exist in the modern global economy in, every, in any country, anywhere on planet Earth, and not use corn at some point in your, in your day. So another reason why, uh, and this is important, and this gets back to why uh, Americans use slightly more corn, say, than, than others per capita in the world. Um, on page number 12, we're looking at a, a Brookings Institution study that basically says 13 years from now, there will be an increase of about 1.2 billion people that are included in middle class. And middle class in this particular study was defined as having uh, as little as 10 extra dollars a day, depending on which country you're in. Now, what is significant about this is that study after study have proven that the first thing people do when they drag themselves out from basically poverty and start to get a little bit of spendable disposable income, they increase the protein intake of their diet that's animal-based. And that can be um, red meat, it can be poultry, it can be fish. Aquaculture uses uh, quite a bit of grain as well. So, what happens is as people become more affluent, the very first thing they tend to do is increase the animal protein portion of their diet. That's a direct increase of grain that's the number one use of corn. So if, even if the population were not growing by 75 to 78 million people a year, people will still use more grains, and the, the, the consumption of grains will still rise as you have an, an economic advancement. 
And that's, that's a very, very significant fact. Um, Americans use much, much more corn per capita than do the rest of the world, even if you exclude exports because we're a huge exporter of corn. And the reason is we, we use more stuff, and corn is in a lot of things. And so by using more things and more stuff, because you're becoming more affluent and have disposable income, you use more grain. It's a, it's a natural term. Um, perhaps one of the more important charts in this presentation on page 13, we have side-by-side -side charts. Um, Left-hand side, we're looking at a green upward-sloping line. It is the uh, historical corn yield, and that is um, very, very um, significant because it's not a smooth line. That, that line indicates that there are problems every once in a while with production, and those are generally weather-related problems. On the right-hand side, you have a smooth upward-sloping line covering the same time period of historical corn consumption. We essentially um, are looking at a smooth line which represents inelasticity. So the inelasticity is really, really um, a, a strong factor when you're looking at you have steady supply and demand that really isn't perfect. So if you have the, 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 the sorry, backwards, you have a steady demand and supply that really isn't perfect. So if you've got demand that really doesn't abate and you get a supply disruption, um, simple economics tells you what, what may happen to the price and, and happen rather quickly. Uh, putting it all together on page 14, and then we'll get to some specific uh, uh, price-related observations. Um, you have all of the grains are interrelated. So corn, sugar, wheat, and soybeans all actually make fuel of some sort. Sugar makes uh, uh, sugar-based ethanol is is the easiest way to to get ethanol. Corn-based is the second easiest way. You've got to strip the starch out of the corn, turn it into sugar and produce ethanol that way. Interestingly enough, um, the food for fuel debate has essentially disappeared. And why that has happened is that the, um, when you strip the starch out of corn, everything else is left, the protein, the fiber. And that becomes an animal feedstock. That's extremely, extremely significant because actually the advent of corn-based ethanol rose raise the amount of available feedstock for animals, and again, that's, that's corn's number one use. So it, it's very interesting that when you look at corn, wheat, soybeans, sugar, they all produce fuel. They all produce fuel. Um, I understand we're having some issues with feedback on the line. I've got my volume as high as I can. Let me see. How's, how's that? Just, just, um, one second for a little technical difficulty here. Let me try to go to speaker to see if that works. Um, bear with us, please. How how is that? I mean, is that a is that a better? Does that reduce the feedback any? All right, we're hearing it's about the same. So, picking back up, we'll uh, we'll continue on. Apologies for the. Uh, disruption there. Now, as we're, all of these things are related. Corn, sugar, wheat, and soybeans. Uh, just as an aside, corn's number one use is animal feed. Sugar, uh, basically, it's fuel and human consumption. Wheat, its number one use is, is human consumption. 
secondarily um, used for animal feed, and wheat can even be used in, in ethanol plants when it's a poor quality wheat. They throw it in there and use the um, use the, the, the poor quality wheat gets turned into fuel. Soybeans are biofuel. That's biodiesel. You get biodiesel primarily from palm oil and soybeans. So all of these grains are intricately linked to the uh, the fuel supply. And, and of course, as economies expand, we need more and more of that. And as biodiesel and with the green economy that is coming globally uh, is used more and more, you've got an additional uh, supply stress on soybeans besides the, the normal Chinese. Uh, is um, it's very clear denomination between 2006, 2007 onward. That is the, after 2007, is the post-ethanol environment. You see a stair step up in prices. The interesting thing to note here is that corn, the market tells you where the break-even price of corn is. One doesn't need to speak directly to a farmer. They don't need to call an agronomist to find out where the break-even price of corn is. The break-even price will, will, will back into the futures market price, and you can see it, you know, freely in, in any whatever venue you use to determine the price. Now, when you're looking at this chart, you can look at the pre-ethanol era. Break-even of corn was just under two dollars, and corn would touch just under two dollars. It would trade around two dollars, and then something would happen, generally a weather-related supply disruption, and corn would go to somewhere between two fifty and three dollars, and. Um, Every so often, you basically got a 50% rise in spot corn price. Post-ethanol, things change dramatically. First off, the break-even price of corn is clearly between about $3.50 and $4. There are some very temporary price spikes below $3.50 a bushel. But you can only get so low. So that, that's one very important factor that people need to understand about grain. Grains will, are like any other agricultural product. Demand keeps rising. Their price is mostly affected by supply. And farmers will plant as much of an agricultural crop as possible whenever they can make money. But when they don't make money, they plant something else or stop planting. So grains are not like securities in two ways. One, you can buy apple at its IPO, for example, and it goes up to whatever it goes to. Buy it at 25 and it goes up to 150, and it backs and fills, and it, it clearly um, has an upward slope with some volatility in there. But Apple's still a company. Technically, something could happen. You could have a management meltdown. You could have a product meltdown. Something could happen. And yes, Apple and any other company on planet Earth can go to zero. What, what grains do, is, or any other commodity, but in particular agricultural commodities, they will spike when supply is interrupted. And the moment that supply comes back, they will go back to trading the same number, which is their cost of production. And this is really, really key, because the price will tell you where the cost of production is. And if we go to the next chart, which, which will break out the 10 years, the last 10 years, it, it's easier to see, the post-ethanol era. Uh, so we're, we're looking at page 16. We're looking at a 10-year price of spot corn. And again, these are spot prices. They can't really be tracked. But, but you can, because they're different kernels of corn at any given time of year with any commodity. But what's very significant here is in 2006-7, in the crop year, when you had a supply disruption, you had 
um, the very next year, because you draw down on supplies and stocks, a price spike of more than 100% in the spot market. So your price spike started going up by about 100% on supply disruption post in the post-ethanol era versus by about 50%, once or twice 100% in the pre-ethanol era. Now, you traded, as you look at this chart, for two years because the price went up in, in summer of 2008. Farmers planted all the corn they could. The crop came in well. Price immediately reverted back to its cost of production. It stayed there until 2010 when we had another uh, supply disruption. What happened? Price again more than doubled, more than 100% increase, spot prices. And this time, people were a little bit afraid that the ending stocks would decline more. Now, what that means is crops are interesting in that you plant them. There's a growing season. There's winter and summer. That's just the way the world works. You plant and you grow your things and you harvest them when it's not winter. During the winter, all the piles of, of, and the stocks of, of grains and agricultural products that you've grown in the summer, you draw down upon. The next year, more seeds go in the ground and you get more crops. What happens is people get afraid that you won't get enough crops. And, and so the, generally corn in the United States, using the United States as an example, Corn has between a 20, in any given year, between a 20 and 60 day supply that's extra. So the amount of corn that's grown in a crop year, once all that's harvested, and you factor in the usage for the entire calendar year, what's left over, hopefully there is some, is, is your excess. And your excess is generally between 20 and 60 days. The market's very comfortable in the middle of that, that range. So when you have around a 40 day supply in the United States that's excess, people are pretty happy. What happens is that sometimes you start drawing down on those ending stocks. Now, in 2007 and 2008, the reason the price collapsed from 2008 back to the cost of production in 2009-2010 was because the ending stocks weren't really affected. You had one hiccup in supply, ending stocks drew down a little bit, and it was okay, and we had good growing conditions. In 2010-11, we drew down a lot of ending stocks, and people got a little nervous. And in 2012, when the second drought hit, people panicked because we got toward the lower end of corn excess stock, down closer to 20 days than, say, to the extreme high end of 60 days, where we happen to be now, actually. And so what happens is you, you had prices not pull back to their cost of production for almost a two-and-a-half-year period. Now, since 2013's growing season, we have gone steadily down as we rebuild stocks, and we have sat at the cost of production, so between $3.50 and $4, futures equivalent of bushels, um, since literally 2014. We are now in our third consecutive year of trading at or near the cost of production of corn. If you look back in history, it looks like every five to seven years, there's a supply disruption significant enough to make a price movement to the upside, away from your break-even point in ag, which is how agriculture trades, and that's the secret. It's not a stock that you buy and it steadily appreciates. Agriculture, you buy them when they're at or near their cost of production, and you wait. And then history shows that something will happen. And if you look at this chart in the past 10 years, the price has doubled. If you actually look back one more year, it's not on this chart, well, two more crop seasons, 
in the past 12 years, it's doubled twice. It's, sorry, three times. And so three times in 12 years, that, that actually exceeds the five to seven year, but we, we are in our fifth year of prices either declining or holding steady. So the clock is ticking on the next supply disruption, which history tells us will come. We simply don't know when. Um, the next page is, is kind of revealing, and that is when, when would you, since we've been three years at the cost of production, is there an optimal time to get in or out of corn? Now, this, this page uh, 17 is provided to us by our friend David Stendall. He does some, uh, a lot of good quality work, particularly on seasonal to all commodities. But this is corn, and this is a 20-year and a 30-year study overlaid. All else being equal, meaning no droughts, in a, in a normal year where you produce just slightly more supplies than demand, and you put a little bit away, which is what we've been having, in that typical year, you tend to get these seasonal price occurrences. And why does that happen? Very simple. Two-thirds or more of the corn grown on planet Earth is grown in the northern hemisphere, primarily by, by China and the United States. So we have a essentially 10-week period. We all have the same, same, same winter, same summer season, same growing season. We're harvesting an entire year's production in 10 weeks' time. When you have a massive amount of supply hitting the market, buyers get complacent, Farmers run out of place to, to store their grains. We'll see in a month or so here, the pictures will go around the Internet of massive mountains of corn covered in tarps because there isn't enough room. And people will get very complacent that I don't really have to buy my corn. And, and so, you know, you've got this massive influx of supply coming in on steady demand. You get a natural price flip. It so happens that in the spot prices of corn on these 20 and 30 year seasonals, the first week of October is very clear. And if you look at the scaling on this chart on the left, you, it tends to bottom uh, just under a value of 100, and you can call this pennies, you can call this percent, whatever you want. It's just a scale. It doesn't represent anything particular. Um, it, it, you have a price rise from the, the low, the harvest seasonal low, that, that looks like it's about 8 or 10%. But the interesting thing is, remember, this chart resets at January at the 100 line. So from January to Somewhere between March and July, which turns out to be the seasonal uh, high point, and we'll get to that in a minute for, for corn, especially for spot corn, you, you have another almost 8 to 10% increase. Now, again, there's no guarantee that this will happen. This is all else being equal, and all else is almost never equal. But these are, these are historical, proven price patterns that if, if you're basically looking at spot corn, you, you can have on an October, first week of October seasonal low to a somewhere between March and June, July seasonal high up to a 10 to 20% uh, appreciation in prices. It happens slowly. It kind of, uh, it just creeps up on you because the complacency tends to go away. So, you know, harvest is in, mountains of corn or, or, or photographs of mountains of corn are going around the internet. Everybody feels good. It gets cold. You drive by a field with nothing planted in it and you're still using the same amount of corn all right, I better start buying some or I'm a little nervous about being short. And, you know, you come to spring and something always happens. There, there's too much rain. Farmers get worried. People get worried. Analysts start writing that what if the corn doesn't grow? The corn always grows. The question is, how much will grow? Will there be plenty, like we've had in the last five years, or will there just be enough, which we've been fortunate always to have enough in the world? But when there's just enough and those ending stocks 
are being chipped away, that's when prices tend to get explosive. Um, and, and that can happen. So is there a seasonal time that you might optimally be able to layer these things into your portfolio? Uh, history would say yes. Now, the next slide is very important because this actually is real pricing down the futures curve. So with this study, and you see two side-by-side -side bar charts on this page, and we're on page 18. This study shows the price of December corn futures in the following calendar year. So if we're talking right now, this 2017, this is for December 2018 corn futures. And we looked at the pattern over the last almost three decades here, the 27-year uh, time period. So in 20, the past 27 years, the December that's out the futures curve, and that usually is held by, by our corn ETFs, and so it, it's a, 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 an interesting measure for us to look at. It's very clear that the greatest number of lows, of price lows, occurs in the last half of the year. You can see in quarter three and in quarter four. And in actuality, it's in the last four months. In September, October, November, and December, that contract has put in price lows 46% uh, of the time in the last 27 years. Now, if you look at price highs the other way, there really is a, is a pretty even dispersion, quarter one, quarter two, quarter three. The only one where there's, there's kind of a significant uh, a lack of price highs in fourth quarter, and again, that's that overwhelming harvest supply season. That's uh, one of the things that, that, that is just a fundamental fact of nature. It's cosmic. So, is there, might there be a better time? Uh, all else being equal, in a year when there's enough supply and when we're when we're producing slightly more than demand, um, the agriculture actually has a you know a very strong seasonal. In particular, corn is a very strong. Um, the rest of this, this presentation is we have the next slide is, is wheat. You can see similar price patterns in wheat. Soybeans, very similar to corn because soybeans and corn share acres. They, they are planted on the same acres. You rotate your crops one year or another. Um, to wrap it all up, and then we'll go to some questions. Um, on page 21, there's a picture of a clock. And it just the, the time is ticking. Time is ticking for people to uh, learn about ags. They, they are a very important component that, that should probably be considered for your portfolio. They can be uh, easily traded now. Um, you don't have to have a futures account. There are uh, exchange-traded products, which two Korean sponsors, and, and you know, we have as our corn fund, and our tickers are up there. We um, are trying to get the message across to people that you use as much or more grain as often, or nearly as often, as you use energy every single day. And your use of those grains will not stop. No one's use of those grains will stop, no matter what the political and economic conditions are anywhere in the world. That's why grains should be um, very strongly considered for, for a person's portfolio. And you have all of these things that are listed. We can redo them, but they're here. There are a wide variety of macroeconomic uses that create demand that never stops. There are a few um, very specific reasons as to why uh, supply of grains can be disrupted in that sense. So that wraps it up. Um, for contact, if anyone would like to contact us, you can go to tucorium.com and find us. You can find uh, me, uh, email me directly um, at sal.gilberti at tucorium.com. You can find Chris, Chris Talbert directly at chris.talbert at tucorium.com. And again, we'll, we'll send out a, a thank you note after this for attendees. 
and uh, we'll have our contact information on there. Please feel free to reach out to us at any time. We'll, we'll get to some questions now, and we will um, uh, continue on. But that's, that's the bulk of our presentation. We'll get, get to questions. Um, first question I see is, is, is it, this is actually a common question that we've gotten before. When do um, uh, you know if a drought is coming? And that's, the, the drought for corn in particular, the, the most critical time, if you look back at price charts, you can tell that a drought is coming in late June and during July. And the price reacts very quickly, essentially uh, post-July 4th through September through an actual drought. You, you tend to get um, a good part of your, your upward movement in, in late summer, early fall when drought conditions persist. And the reason for that is that, that it, 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 pollination time and, and fill time, so, so kernel fill time in the corn market happens in mid-late summer. And you can see the forecast. So by the 4th of July, the, the long-range forecast pretty much tell you that that critical month of, of July, whether or not there's going to be good weather, you tend to have your prices begin to accelerate upward um, uh, at, at that point. So you just, you just have to watch. And prices will tell you. Things will happen. And the news media tends to talk about grains when there's a drought. So it does come to your attention. Um, this is a good one. Why don't people know about something so fundamentally obvious? Um, I think that, that access to grains, that, that's a great question. Access to grains has been limited to futures trading and people with futures expertise until the advent of the ETF structure and until Tucrium, until we ourselves came out with the single commodity ag. Our oldest fund, corn, is only seven years old. It literally hasn't even been around for most of the droughts and supply disruptions. Um, it, it does perform well. It did perform well during the last two, so um, in 2010 and, and 2012. I think that, that it's just a matter of education, and it's a matter of ease and availability to get to uh, uh, to get an exposure, a direct exposure of ag in your portfolio. But people don't realize that with the seasonal pattern and with the inelasticity of demand, um, you can, if you use an allocation model, we have people saying, I've just allocated X percent to, say, corn, and I've done it at the cost of production. I know that at some point that price is going to be affected and is going to go higher, perhaps much higher, and I will, my X will become you know, 2X, and I'll, I'll cut it back. I'll cut it back down there. So a lot of people are just allocating and rebalancing. That way they don't have to watch the news. They actually don't need to know when there's a drought. The, the prices and the performance in their portfolio will tell them. And, you know, grains do stabilize the portfolio. They do um, uh, very often not correlate nearly as well with the S&P 500 as we've seen as with other commodities. Um, that's... It's obvious to us, but back to the question, why don't people know about something so fundamentally obvious? It's obvious to us, but we think about grains all the time, and hopefully um, webinars like this will, will uh, spread the word. A um, couple of different questions, a variety of questions on climate change. Um, that's, that's really important. Um, I, I think that, that uh, what we need to do is think about climate change in a couple of, of different ways. One is, it's certainly happening, and and with it happening, that that is a direct effect on crop production. There there is no doubt that the uncertainty of supply will continue uh, to be uncertain, and may, with climate change and global warming, be, continue to become more uncertain. And that's very 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 significant. Um, uh, among our questions is 
where uh, and, and you know what kind of storms will affect uh, crops. Uh, we've seen a lot of hurricanes. We're in an active hurricane season. In terms of the crops we're talking about here, it's more logistics that are affected because these are these are coastal storms. I think that, that the big um, wheat, wheat hit its all-time high price in back-to-back droughts in Australia. So it's very critical to, to understand that wheat is a dispersed commodity if you're talking about wheat. And so a drought in Australia, a drought in India, a uh, drought or any kind of poor growing conditions in the Soviet Union or former Soviet Union um, or in the upper Midwest of the United States, those all can affect the wheat market. And we, in fact, saw that. We saw wheat was, was a, you know, had some pretty good price movements earlier this year on the drought that, that has since ended in the Dakotas. Those are big wheat-producing states, just in the United States, but the price of global wheat went up because of a really regionalized drought in the United States. Um, as far as corn goes, corn, um, you don't know what's happening in China. They have enormous corn stocks that people claim are old. They are implementing a policy of, of using more ethanol. Many people believe that's driven because their corn stocks can't be used for anything but ethanol right now. So if China has a problem growing, which you find out about uh, generally afterwards, um, they start importing more corn. And they've been net importers of corn for many, many years. They turned net importers of oil um, and never stopped. And the same thing happened with them with corn. Once they turned net importers of corn, they never stopped. They've done the same with beans. They're importing um, year after year record amounts of soybeans. So, so climate um, and global population both at once are affecting that. Um, watch the weather, but again, you don't have to. I think that with grains at their cost of production, at or near their cost of production, and the charts tell you where that is. We're happy to talk to you about that if you want to contact us directly. But the charts in general tell you where that is. If, if people are doing what we hear advisors are doing, allocating at the cost of production, I think they believe um, and I would concur that they have, um, and again, we don't give investment advice, so we, we, we just give the story and make your own decisions. But commodities and agricultural commodities do have a more limited downside when they're at their cost of production than, say, a security, which has any number of variables that can, can nuke it to, to zero. Uh, that's pretty much how, how, how it goes. I think we're done for questions, unless we have any more. Just checking. I want to thank everybody for attending. This has uh, been well attended. We're very pleased with the turnout, and happy everyone could come. Please don't feel feel free to contact us. Don't hesitate to contact us. Thank you again.